Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 32 of the Double Density Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Angelo. Now, before we started recording, Angelo, you and I had a, a bit of a moment together, a shared moment, if you will. And uh, if our li- listeners will allow us, we'd like to ruminate a bit on things that we don't necessarily get to do anymore. So uh, we use Skype to record our episodes. And uh, when Angelo picked up, when I called him, I said, may I speak to Angelo, please? Much like uh, back in the day when you call someone's home, you're looking for somebody else. You'd hope that you'd reach them. That doesn't happen that often anymore because most people just have their own cell phone number. Now, I don't know if this will start happening in this household once my daughter uh, starts getting phone calls from her friends and then my son later on. We still actually have a house line that somebody can call. So um, I don't know if we're going to get rid of it, but maybe one day. It's just that it's tied into the cable package, so it pretty much costs nothing to have it. So we have it. Well, the other thing, too, is that all these people now have cellular telephones, right? So the, the idea of a home phone as a home base isn't um, as needed as it once was either. Yeah, that's it. Most people just either, t- like, how often do you actually talk on the phone? Are you, is that rhetorical or literal? I, both. Okay, I'd say, like, maybe 30 minutes a week. Yeah, see, so, and I think we've discussed uh, the lifetime of calls on my old uh, iPhone 6s was not very much considering I'd had it for two years, and on this iPhone 8 I've had for two months. Um, I think total call time is 30 minutes. All right, so I've had this phone for uh, nine months now, and a lifetime call on this is 19 hours 27 minutes. That is not that much in the grand scheme of things. No, and, and you got to consider that I make a lot of service calls on here, right? So things like my ISP or other things that I need to deal with. So uh, being put on hold for hours at a time is part of that. See, yeah, that's something I don't do with my cell phone because I have a house phone or a uh, worst case scenario, I'll uh, call from my office at work on a break or at lunchtime or something just so that I don't have to waste time at home either. That's it. Using them office resources for very important things. So if you want to play well, a prank on I, your friends, I, hey, okay, hey, go, hey, go on, I, go on. I, I did say on my break or at lunchtime. Right. So you're stealing work electricity using a work phone on, <laughs> on break time. Yes. I go ahead and I'm going to ask your employer to bill you for that time. Sure. I'm sure they will for local calls. <laughs> Anyways, like I was saying, if you want to play a prank on someone, definitely call their cell phone and ask to speak to them and see what they say. That's actually a really good idea. I, the thing is, is I often do that because part of my real job is to call people on the phone from time to time. Actually today was like, I could not stop getting voicemail messages for some reason. Um, I think it was the, the first day where something can happen uh, with with the people I deal with, and uh, just everybody was calling, and I would take a call, call them back, and then another one just pop up, and it was driving me crazy, which I think I expressed to you via text. It was kind of confusing, because I didn't know exactly what you had meant at the time, so uh, understanding everything now in context, I now get where you're coming from. It just wouldn't stop. No. Um, a very quickly, a cleanup or a, a, a follow-up item from last week's episode, episode 31. We talked about a Mad Mike Hughes, the man who was going to launch a low-orbit steam-powered rocket through the desert in order uh, to uh, create a proof of concept for his flat earth uh, theory slash empire slash uh, raison d'être. Uh, so... <laughs> Scheduled to happen November 25th on Saturday. It did not happen. So ironically enough, Mad Mike Hughes was grounded. The uh, steam-powered rocket did not even leave his property from understanding because the government uh, canceled it, stating that he did not have the proper permits, or if you're from Baltimore, permits. So it's a uh, big round earth 
they're keeping him down. Yeah, once again. And so he's using that as obviously more fuel for his fire in this case. So who knows where it's going to go. He's probably going to try and do this again. Probably not. I don't know what this man's going to do. So just a thought experiment. How mind-blowing would it be if they discover that the Earth was actually flat and we've been lied to this whole time? Uh, are you talking about me personally or like the world in general? The world in general. So, Angela, question for you. Uh, what do you think would be more mind-blowing uh, to people? The existence of extraterrestrial life or the idea that the Earth is flat and uh, its uh, outer rings are covered in that sort of like permafrost ice that uh, proponents of the flat Earth theory uh, concocted? No question, flat Earth. Yeah, uh, I, at this point, I think so, too. Eh? There's, there's way, way too much evidence that uh, the Earth is round, and it would be shocking that the Earth was actually flat. Uh, whereas, we, as we've said before, the universe is infinite and ever-expanding, and there's billions upon billions of stars out there with life probably teeming all over the place. Um, whether they're visiting us or not is up in the air, which I fall on the side of probably not visiting us, but who knows. But in terms of is there life out there, anybody is pretty foolish if they say they we're the only things in the universe. As I said last episode, alien megastructure or alien uh, beings, if you're listening out there, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. On Twitter or on our website. Oh, I was hoping you'd list them off. You're good at that. <laughs> uh, alien beings, you can, <laughs> you can tweet. Does Twitter exist in outer space? That's a great question. Something we'll need to solve uh, once the Mars mission leaves in a couple of years. But anyways, you can find us over at Twitter, double underscore density, facebook.com slash double density podcast. Same thing for Instagram. And you can also visit our website at double density.net. Hit the contact link to uh, hook up with us. I wonder if an alien started using Twitter, if you'd have trouble getting verified. One and two, like the amount of maymays on there, I think would freak an alien out. You have to explain what maymays are. Well, they're just refried memes, really. <laughs> All right. So, Angela, we're heading uh, closer and closer to holiday season. And one of the astounding things, I think, uh, in my mind is the lack of the HomePod. Yeah, we found out a few weeks ago that the HomePod is going to be delayed most people pretty much thought at this point that it was too late anyway for the holidays. Although, although last year's AirPods came out on December 21st, so they kind of missed the whole holiday rush. And I think most people have had a hard time finding them until just recently. So Apple seems to have trouble with their audio devices, getting them out there for people to buy and use. So the HomePod delay for sometime 2018. I'd hazard a guess that it'll probably be coming out sometime in March or April, along with probably a um, revamped iPhone SE or something like that. They usually have like a March event of some kind. And there was an interesting article in Bloom Bloomberg recently on the 21st of November by Mark Gurman, who's well known for his scoops with Apple stuff. And this HomePod has been in development for years, actually, according to this article. So can I just and, interject very quickly? Um, yes. I have a bone to pick with the article. Please go, go, go for it. And it's the header graphic, right? So it's one of these classic uh, 90s fighters sort of things that pits the uh, Apple HomePod against the Amazon Echo. But why is the Player 2 uh, on the left-hand side? Traditionally, Player 2 is on the right-hand side. They don't know their video games, do they? There we go. Uh, if it's anyone Bloomberg. wants to take a look at it, we're going to link uh, to that in the show notes. But sorry, I was interrupting you. Uh, this is a very minor gripe that has very little bearing on the actual issue at hand. It's just something that I noticed, and I get very angry about because that's just how I am. 
it's you're detail oriented and i agree with you it was a good interruption brian <laughs> thanks angelo i'm glad that you flagged it as a quality yeah as i was saying though the amazon echo has been out for a few years we're actually getting it in canada here on december 5th um i don't think i'm gonna get one are you gonna get one brian um so i think i went off this uh, today when we were talking about this as an idea for the, the show i feel like too many people are already just openly talking to themselves both outside and in the home do i really need to add another reason to talk to myself in, in my living space i agree i i i hear good things about the echo but the problem is, is i don't have any services that would really tie into the echo i use apple music you can't use apple music with the amazon echo i'm not going to start paying for a different music service or anything and i just would feel weird with something listening to me all the time so what about the home pod though would you be interested in a home pod i'm not quite sure about that either right now um <laughs> I think uh, an audiophile would have a nightmare about this, and we'll get into that later. But we listen to streaming music through our 10-year-old television speakers with Apple Music through the Apple TV. You're talking about you in the home personally? In the home, yeah, like with the kids and stuff. Uh, before uh, bed tonight, they had Christmas music playing. And it sounds fine to us. And when I want to listen to music, let's say during a workout, I have a nice JPL, uh, JBL um I said JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, <laughs> gave me, they gave me a speaker that they put on the space shuttle. So I have a JBL speaker that sounds really good. I've had it for years, and it does the job more than I needed to. I had considered Sonos speakers, but they're really expensive. Uh, the, and speaking of expensive, the HomePod's probably going to be over $400 here in Canada. And it won't be available right away anyway. So we'll see what happens. Pro tip, instead of talking to a HomePod, you could always talk to your children and let them do uh, things like change the music or call people. Yeah. Instead of uh, Siri uh, changing my music, it's, hey, kid, go pick something else. There you go. Uh, question for you. What, what do you listen to uh, Christmas-wise with your kids then in that case? We're starting to branch out. It used to be mostly boring kids music which i well i guess boring is is a mean word it's not boring it's just not exactly the best christmas music i can deal with it for a few months a month and a half max my wife feels the same way so it was only this weekend we started allowing music christmas music to be played in the household when we trimmed the tree and um we there's a really good pop music playlist on apple music that's actually not horrible there's some good stuff on there and it's okay for Christmas music. But you mostly stick to the classics. Nothing too weird. Nothing too bizarre. No, no, no dogs barking Christmas songs or anything like that. <laughs> I, uh, I, one, I'm offended. But two, uh, if you want to give your family a bit of a spin, you can always check out A Soulful Christmas, the James Brown album, which includes the hit Santa Claus Goes Straight to the Ghetto. So uh, 1968 album, uh, great stuff. I'd suggest putting it on without commentary and seeing what your family says. I don't know how long it would last. Uh, maybe the whole song, who knows. But speaking of music, you kind of lost it on me today online. Uh, just in terms of, uh, you you went down a really uh, specific and strange rabbit hole that we don't really go down. But I feel like this is perfect for the tech section. And it's one of the few times where I've seen you use caps lock on a few um, straight messages uh, due to anger and disillusionment. Well, the... The whole reason behind the HomePod was because Apple kind of wanted to appeal to audiophiles, make something that would sound good for them as well as just the regular person. And having read about audiophiles, 
the HomePod would be laughed at by them because it's as 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 expensive as I feel it is. It's a joke compared to what most audiophiles pay for their audio equipment, and it brought me down this kind of crazy rabbit hole of reading a few articles. The, the first one I came across, which then led me to a whole bunch of other stuff, was um, an article called "The Swift Boating of Audiophiles." It's an old article from twenty uh, from two thousand eight. Uh, in February by Michael Fremer, whose name came up a lot when I started researching audiophiles. So folks, uh, settle in now as Angela goes down the rabbit hole of the audiophile. Well, look, after having read through a bunch of this stuff, I came away with a bit more of an understanding, um, and I'll get to that later, but reading it, they sound a little insane. Uh, the whole thing of this one, I, I came across it because he tried to win the Randy Million Dollar Challenge that's normally reserved for paranormal stuff, which kind of uh, obviously uh, really works well with our podcast. But he didn't actually go through with it because the cable provider, uh, not like Comcast or anything, the, the provider of the cables that they were going to test kind of pulled out at the end. And they decided not to go through with it. But it, he essentially wanted to do a double blind test where he'd have to tell the difference between extraordinarily expensive hundreds of dollar cables versus just the regular cables that us uh, regular people would be using. So it didn't work out. And he wrote this whole article. But there's a quote that I came uh, across actually uh, that stood out to me and kind of looking at it 10 years later, basically shows that he's kind of wrong about where the technology is going with audiophiles and what kind of uh, things people do listen to. And I'll, I'll let you read the quote, Brian. So this is from Michael Fremer himself. Wall Street Journal theater and music critic Terry uh, Teachout, which by the way is a great name, uh, seems to find the very concept of good sound damn annoying, maybe even repellent. Back in September 2002, he wrote an article entitled Listening Will Never Be the Same for the Neocon Journal Commentary, in which he took the absolutist position that record stores would have become extinct, along with music's distribution via physical media. In that article, he also wrote that he is, quote, rarely capable of telling the difference between an MP3 file and the original CD from which it has been ripped, unquote. Imagine a film critic writing that he could t- barely tell the difference between a 35mm print projected in a movie theater and a 16mm print viewed on a bedsheet or worse, claiming it was a perfectly satisfactory way to view a movie for review. So that's a false equivalency if I've ever seen one. It's frustrating to hear that because he gets all upset but now looking back at this it seems pretty silly because this terry teachout guy who he was railing against was actually pretty much um right on track don't you think so uh the, uh, one yes but two you have to understand that the audiophile is is several things so i think that one he's an endangered species i think you'd agree with that right at this point yeah most people don't care Two, he is older, male, and white, and has a lot of money. Would you agree with that? That's exactly what this guy is. Exactly. And so the idea of new technologies eclipsing his beloved technology that he's invested so much time and effort and money into is a scary proposition, right? Absolutely. And, and so like knowing that, I think that forms a good basis for what um, the classic audiophile is. And uh, in some of the articles that you link to, they... Uh, Fremer isn't scared to talk about the $6,000 headphones that he's bought. So I linked you to another one of his articles, and we'll put them in the show notes. Um, this one really made me annoyed. 
the other stuff, you know, you can understand. I guess in his mind, he's, he hears a difference in these cables. I don't know if science would bear anything out about that. I, there's no information on whether he ever took the challenge, but if somebody had won the Randy challenge, we'd probably know about it. So there's an article that really upset me when I was doing this research. Another one much more. So I decided to go look at his recent articles, and this one's much more recent. Uh, in fact, it's uh, from October. And it's um, an article where he's reviewing this very high-end portable audio player uh, by Estelle and Kern, the A and Ultima SP1000 portable audio player. And apparently you can put MP3s on it or whatever uh, lossless audio files you want on it. And the thing that blew my mind is the cost of this thing. How expensive is it, Angelo? So people were going crazy about the iPhones and the uh, Galaxy Note 8 being over $1,000 for a smartphone. This thing is not a smartphone. It runs Android, but you can't use it as a phone or any sort of other Android device. It just plays audio files. It costs (sighs) $3,499. Only. $3,499. And it plays all the regular audio files uh, out of the box. It has Wi-Fi, all kinds of stuff. I'll, I'll link to the article so you can kind of see what it is. I feel it's super ugly. Uh, it has, uh, but it has USB-C, unlike <laughs> the iPhone, I guess. Uh, but it's really ugly. You would agree expensive? Uh, what can you get for $3,400? Almost $3,500. You can buy a decent like a beater car for that price. Yeah. That's like and two vacations. Pretty much. And then um, he heard from a company called Audis, who lent him some headphones to go along with it. Uh, there are some planner magnetic in-ear headphones. Okay. They cost $2,495. Oh, okay, great. That sounds great. So for $6,000... He had this really great um, thing that plays the same files that your iPhone would play. So worst case scenario, if you wanted to hear the same thing, you can plug in those uh, ridiculously expensive headphones, or you could just spend a little less money and put some regular headphones on. That would probably sound not that different. Now, one thing I can agree with with audiophiles and in looking at this is that I guess, yeah, if you have better equipment, obviously it's a hundred dollar pair of headphones are going to sound better than a fifteen dollar pair of headphones that you just buy at the pharmacy. But at a certain point, it becomes sort of ridiculous. So something, a couple of interesting points. You link to a Gizmodo profile that uh, someone had written about Michael Fremer. So. Uh, the art, the uh, article notes that he his sound system is about a quarter of a million dollars uh, worth of like audio equipment. There, he has some crazy speakers that he uses. They're bonkers. They're like gigantic, and I think they cost sixty five thousand dollars a pair. Sorry, not sixty five thousand dollars each. I each, think. okay, something like that. Okay, it it doesn't make sense. No, at no, all. it doesn't. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, he also claims that anywhere from like six to seven thousand dollars would get you a decent audio setup, right? No, that's that's so crazy. That six to seven thousand dollars would get you. Just get an iPhone or a Samsung phone or any phone. Put some if you really want lossless audio on there. Even though most people, if anyone, can actually tell the difference between a decently um, ripped MP3 versus uh, straight audio like that. But it, it is kind of crazy. It really makes no sense to me. 
so let's let's go a, a bit deeper into the characterization so older male white what i forgot to mention is uh the amount of fetishization that they do in terms of physical media versus uh you know any sort of digital media right so um a lot of these audiophiles uh above all prize the vinyl record as the ultimate format for listening to things this guy especially really loves vinyl he has uh, an audio uh, what's it called uh, analog audio website and he's really into the actual the whole process of listening to a vinyl album seems something that appeals to him and that's not something i'm going to fault him for i, I i'm going to link a video of his setup in his house uh, he seems like a really nice guy he seems like somebody you'd get along with unless you start talking with him about uh, audio stuff because then he'll get really upset there's something also i've noticed in these uh, hi-fi magazine reviews the the language they use to explain these actual the way they explain sound and stuff just makes me want to throw up <laughs> and why is that <laughs> it's just the way so i i sent you a quote of something he wrote but he was describing um moonlight drive by the doors and he wrote in some ways the various musical elements were excessively dissected but overall the timbral and textural balance along with the precision of the attacks and generous sustain produced a picture that seemed to be organic on the cellular level without ever sounding mechanical <laughs> that is a whole lot of nothing that actually gives me an idea i think you and i should take the month of december and each try to write like one super pretentious uh, uh review like some kind of like like album review and see where it goes well, I would want our listeners to go to Kirkville. It's um, uh, Kirk uh, McElhern's website. He's a, he was a writer for uh, Macworld and stuff. And he every once in a while, he posts an article about uh, hi-fi magazines. It's, um, it's an ongoing article. Like uh, the most recent one was from November 21st. And it's, it's how hi-fi magazines write about cables, part 21. He's just had tons and tons of articles. And... He loves to make fun of the way they talk about sound, just like we did. And uh, you really, uh, I'd encourage you to go read some of those articles. They're a lot of fun because he points out how ridiculous they are, especially in the world of digital audio. It's, there's no difference. You can buy a cheap cable, an expensive cable. As long as the cable works, you're going to hear the same thing. So I have a bit of a background in music criticism, right? And I, I've never tried to hide it, nor have I um, played it up either, I guess, on the podcast. But um, a lot of the words that people use, uh, especially in higher-end stuff, almost tends to want to justify the price, right? So a lot of this stuff is thousands, if not ten thousands of dollars uh, expensive, right? So the words that they use uh, go accordingly. And when a lot of the times it'd be a lot easier to do a very no-frills kind of review, but that is not the way that this works. No, not at all. And, and that's the thing, too, is that like the way in which then write about music is very um, high concept, I guess, would be the best way of putting it because of the fact that they need to justify their love. And a lot of them are very much engaged in one-upmanship, right? So the idea of having the best setup, the best-looking setup. And uh, you linked to a Reddit post where someone had shown their setup and how expensive the room was in general, and people were just commenting on how expensive it was to set that whole uh, room up, which I thought was kind of interesting. They all seem to have the similar, it's like a weird setup where you have the stereo system on one side of the wall, you have the speakers there, and then you have like this chaise longue where you're like sitting back and just, I just picture them just sitting there contemplating the music they listen to. And 
um, I'll occasionally just sit and listen to music and just enjoy it. But it's it's rare that I'll I can just sit down and just I'm gonna just sit here and listen to music without like just closing my eyes and trying to fall asleep or whatever. It's just it's an odd thing that I'm not a part of. It's something that I've never really done too much of. So maybe it's because I'm coming at it from the outside that I don't understand. Is that how you listen to music, Brian? <laughs> yes, I have three different rooms, each with different setups and different chairs that allow me to really enjoy uh, whatever music I'm trying to consume. Uh, so you and I are vastly different uh, in that way, Angelo. Just to let you know, you are a commoner. You're going to be posting pictures of those three rooms, I hope. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. Uh, on a more serious note, though, no, I, that is absolutely not how I listen to music. <laughs> do I sit down sometimes and listen to an album? Absolutely. Uh, do I always Same want a here. better and bigger pair of speakers? Absolutely. But uh, physical constraints in terms of my current living space don't allow me to do that. And that's fine. I live with that, you know. But on the other hand, I feel like all of these audiophiles have a lot of disposable income. And I, I was mentioning this while we were prepping for tonight. Um, one of the big things a couple of years ago was uh, gold-plated HDMI cables, which were more expensive than regular HDMI cables. And we all know how big of a scam that was as soon as it came out, but a lot of people fell for it, unfortunately. But it's one of the many things that you can point to in terms of the idea of you know the higher-end, more expensive thing being the, the best possible solution. But in a lot of cases, it really isn't, as you were saying before. When I worked at Future Shop, which which eventually became Best Buy here in Canada, the salesmen used to love pushing the expensive monster cables on people, and it's because of the markup on them. They the the sales how they work there is would they would basically make the difference between the cost and the uh, sticker prices, and these things were marked up so much they they essentially cost like twenty bucks to the store but they were sold at $120. So they would make tons of money and people would ask, well, what's the difference? And they would go on this spiel that they'd have written about how the sound is crisper and comes through more clearly. And it's completely wrong because the sound is the sound and it comes through because it's all digital. There's a reason and they call them gold plated. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fool's gold. Oh, oh, look at that. Oh, harsh oh. words. Uh, but yeah, these men uh, have a lot of disposable income, which I find really interesting. And hey, uh, we're always looking for sponsorship. So maybe if one of these audiophiles wants to come aboard and sponsor us and offer us, you know, the best in uh, uh, both headgear as well as, you know, uh, gold plated um, uh, mic cables and the like, we, we wouldn't say no, would we? No. And there's just a couple of things I want to say before we, we got off this topic, unless you still have a lot more to say. Um his conclusion of the uh, Astell and Kearns thing, he wrote, it's probably more portable player than you'll need. And at $34.99, its price might even offend some. But in terms of build quality, ergonomics, and sound, ANK's ultimate player delivered what ANK had promised. All you might need is one of ANK's less expensive players. But if you want the best, this is it. Sorry, but it's a digital music player. So... Anything that puts out digital audio, as long as you can plug your best headphones in or really good speakers or whatever, will sound exactly the same. It's really very much of a ripoff. Well, absolutely. And I also think that uh, beyond that, it's just, it's almost sad that 
I guess people need hobbies and some people have more expensive hobbies than others is the way that I'm seeing this in the quest for uh, musical greatness. It kind of reminds me of the cast of people uh, from the novel and the film High Fidelity, right? All these people who are music stomps and I think this is a very specific strain of music style that not necessarily is uh, concerned with the content of the music, but rather how it's presented. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I do understand it's not lost on me that people probably think like this about me when it comes to like my computing devices. Uh, it's not, I'm very self-aware because most people don't need a $2,500 iMac with a 5k screen and extraordinarily fast uh, RAM and uh, really fast storage and all that stuff. Most people would not get anything out of it. I decided to get one because that's what I like. So I I get it. Again, though, it's $2,500. For only $1,000 more, I could buy a little uh, audio player that would do not even uh, an eighth of what my iMac does. Or like a hundredth. <laughs> uh, like, I was about to say, I think it's less than that. Yeah, it's like, what, that was just what I pulled out of my head. But because I'm, I'm, Brian, this gets me so upset that I can't even think anymore. Double Density presents The Three Titans. Welcome back to Double Density. As always, we are switching gears from tech to the paranormal. We actually had to take a little bit of a break there because Angelo got so heated that all I got was just a uh, stream of swear words uh, interspersed with a bunch of audio terms that I did not understand. I might try and edit it in. I might not. But Angelo, you've calmed down, right? I have. I just want people to take away from that, that it's all fine to have a hobby. I get that really good speakers sound really good, but $3,500 for a digital audio player? is a total ripoff. Go buy yourself an iPhone and a Galaxy Note 8. You'll have the best of both, and you'll be happy with two things that ended up costing you less than that insane digital audio player. They're both a lot nicer, too. Uh, speaking of people with hobbies this week, uh, so for the last couple of episodes, we've stayed away from UFOs by and large, right? So we talked pyramids, we talked Chicago Mothman, we talked Bermuda Triangle, but we've circled back to one of our favorite, if not the favorite paranormal topic, which is uh, the saucers in our skies. And this actually, uh, this week's topic was brought to us uh, by your recent uh, television, uh, television viewing habits. So I don't know if this could be considered a spoiler or anything um, on especially a show that aired two years ago, but I recently watched Fargo, season one and season two. I haven't watched season three yet. And I knew nothing about the show going in. So uh, if you really want to not be spoiled, what, skip ahead like three minutes? I'd, I'd, say, I'd say like a minute. A minute, yeah. So skip ahead a minute i'll try brian will try to keep it under a minute let's say two two minutes and go i started watching uh season two of fargo i watched season one fantastic highly recommend it i started watching season two and within the first half an hour i'd say or first before the end of the episode it's just a regular true crime type thing and all of a sudden a ufo shows up 
out of nowhere. And I didn't know what to do with myself. So, and then it comes back a bit and they don't touch on it too much for the rest of the, for the rest of the series, but still it made me look into UFOs in late 1970 Minnesota. And I came across a really interesting, I came across a really interesting case that I actually had heard of and I'd sort of forgotten, uh, the Val Johnson incident. So you're talking about the Val Johnson incident of 1979. Exactly. Uh, which is a really interesting incident. A lot of people kind of uh, declared as one of the landmark cases uh, of UFO lore within the United States, I'd say. Yeah. And the reason I came across it is I, I actually searched Fargo UFO and it brought me to this article of the real life UFO story behind this season of Fargo. So again, not really big spoilers there or anything. This was really interesting. A guy hit a UFO with his car. Yeah, pretty much, right? So That's what it boils down to. Well, not his car, his work car. A police car, yes. Right. He was actually a police officer, so he's again one of the famed trained observers. Right, so Val Johnson uh, works for the sheriff's office, or he's a deputy sheriff uh, in one of these Minnesotan counties, and in the middle of the night, in late August 1979, he is patrolling kind of this quiet road and then uh he sees this beam up ahead that approaches him and then uh his car uh or rather his work car swallowed in light right so and then suddenly uh johnson hears a sound which is a uh, glass breaking and then uh he then self-reported that he had was unconscious for about uh 45 minutes maybe a little bit less and when he awoke he realized that uh his wristwatch and the clock within the police car had stopped for 14 minutes. So he wakes up, the windshield is shattered. And then, um, his, one of the headlights and one of the emergency lights was damaged. And, um, so some deputies show up, uh, sometime later. And then, uh, cause Johnson had radio in for help and they find the car, uh, sideways. And then, so Johnson had suffered a lot of bruises and also uh, a very interesting, uh, eye condition that, a physician uh, compared to welders burns as per the wikipedia article about the incident so that's kind of interesting and then um so he uh a train observer has this incident where a uh, beam of light takes him and his vehicle he doesn't remember things he wakes up the car is near totaled it's the classic ufo trope practically the interesting thing in this case is that there's a lot of physical evidence the car got smashed the windshield's gone. One of the aerials, the aerial antenna for the CB radio got uh, trashed. And something weird happened to his eyes. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the, the very bizarre thing is that like it, it both had, like it has all the hallmarks of the classic kind of uh, UFO abduction story, right? It has the missing time. It has the damaged um, physical uh, ephemera attached to it. He uh, is scared, shaking, doesn't remember and uh, he uh, is just a man on a road in the middle of the night, right? And that's that's one of the things I was talking about uh, some time back uh, in one of the many conversations we have about this part, right? So, like, there's stuff like aching body parts and confusion. And then um, when you really consider, uh, this is one of the classic tropes of ufology, right? So the, the person on the road in the middle of the night. So people like um, Betty and Barney Hill are a prime example of that too, right? And we covered them uh, earlier this year. And then 
this leads me to the question of like, why don't more UFOs visit us during the day, right? So uh, Lonnie Zamora, of course, is a notable exception. He sees his UFO at like 5.56-ish, you know, in, in California. It's really, or not California, but, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of nice outside. He sees uh, this physical saucer coming at him, but most of the time it's things at night, like, you know, the Lubbock Lights in 1951, the Phoenix Lights, the Reynoldsham Forest incidents, all these things that happen at night. Why is it so uh, commonplace for UFOs to visit us in the night? Well, let me put my skeptic hat on for a second and say that the more reasonable reason this happens is because it's a lot easier to misidentify something at night. You're not seeing what it is. So therefore, you know it's a flying object, but it remains unidentified, then turning it into a UFO. So for the most part, the reason this stuff happens at night is because people are misidentifying something that's actually normal. If it was daylight, they'd see it's a plane or a balloon or whatever in the sky, but not something utterly bizarre. The reason these things happen at night is it's harder for us to actually understand what we're seeing at that point so therefore that's why most of these things happen at night that sounded like me like summing up an essay <laughs> the thesis is uh etc etc but those are very good points i think that it's it's easier to identify things than daylight than it is at night right and it's also um just the concept of night itself is a very lonely kind of place to be, right? So during the day, everyone is kind of working their regular nine to five. The majority of people are, right? So a lot of these people who work third shift, people like cops or firefighters, uh, wayward teens, stoners, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, misfits and people who have odd hours uh, tend to be the only people up after, you know, like 11 o'clock or midnight uh, when a lot of these purported um, sightings happen. So I think it's, it's also uh, the mindset of someone in the middle of the night is very different from someone in the middle of the day who is surrounded by lots of people now i do want to remove my skeptic act for a second and do mention that uh, wait hold on wait 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 wait. if you're removing your skeptic hat what hat are you putting on just regular old hat like a beanie yeah beanie i guess or maybe a toque it is getting cold let's put angelo's toque on and listen to what he has to say so my non-skeptic toque hat is on um do we need to explain what a toque is uh, do you want to go ahead and do this for our non-Canadian listeners, which is the majority of you we found out most recently? Yes, it's, it's a knitted hat. Basically, that's what we call them here. For the wintertime months. Yes, because it's very cold. I'm going to take off my skeptic hat, like I was saying, because noted skeptic Philip Class said this whole Val Johnson incident was a hoax, which I completely disagree with. I don't think this was a hoax at all. Do you think this guy... This cop would just decide, you know what? Lonely road at night. It's dark. Don't know what's going on. Let me just fake an accident. Or he got scared by a squirrel or something, went off the road, hit something. Oh man, what did I do? Let me say it was a UFO. So I have I have a, a theory here uh, that a Molotov cocktail-like object was thrown his way when you consider the evidence, right? So the breaking glass, the unconsciousness, the injury to the eye, there was like a welder's uh, beam uh, had welded around him. So there's a lot there to be done. That, that's that's actually a really, really good uh, theory. That or some kind of pellet or something. I just, 
there's a lot there that I don't think that he himself inflicted upon himself. I think you're right there that he is not a hoaxer, but something may have come at him in such a way that he did not realize what was happening, but it affected him and his, his body and everything that that's why he lost consciousness for a while. That's why his wristwatch and radio stopped working for a while. Maybe he was pulsed. Maybe the U S government was practicing EMPs early in the seventies. Was it a flaming goat that came at him? Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one, Angelo. But, but, but I, I do agree with you and I disagree with Philip J. Klaas. Um, and then what we're going to do actually in the, in the show notes is linked to a, a fate magazine article, which also, uh, last week, uh, we had mentioned, uh, from the George X Sand story about the Bermuda Triangle. So, you know, we're, we're covering all the bases here. Um, but it's a pretty lengthy article that kind of goes into, uh, Philip J. Klaas's ideology and why it may be wrong, I guess would be the best way of putting it versus the GLN school where he used to be a skeptic then crossed over into the more um, believer kind of lane of thinking yes class is our the epitome of a number one on our scale he's like to the left of uh would it be left i guess yeah one is left yeah Yeah. so he's to the left of carl sagan or like below he is he's like underground yeah he's like at the very tippity tip of the one Philip J. Class is the mole man okay. of the double density ufology scale. He is at, he's who everyone else is judged against in terms of uh, skepticality. There we go. I'd say Jalen Hynek is squarely in the middle. Yeah, I'd be willing to accept out of a four, out of a four, he'd be a two, 2.5. I think that, yeah. that's a good place to put him. And that, that's where I hope I fall. I, although you th- probably think I'm more like a 1.5. Yeah, I think you're more of a 1.5 to a 2. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, you're, and you're to the right of, um, of Heineck, I think. And, and here we are again, bringing up the double density scale of ufology, which I'm hoping catches on and becomes like some sort of real actual scale, like the Richter scale. <laughs> you know what? I hope that it, it is uh, formalized in a thesis in a, a journal of some sort that we can then reference as being a printed uh, material. And by printed, I mean probably a PDF that someone uploaded to the internet at one point about us. It'd be pretty great. We are we are getting more and more of a following, so I'm hoping somebody comes up with a uh, an actual printed double density scale of ufology with pictures. You know, you'll have um, class at the end, and in the middle you'll have Heineck. And at the, who now we haven't discussed who's the number four. We had sort of touched on Whitley Strieber being a number four. I think he's a number four or that or like a Kenneth Arnold. Really? Kenneth Arnold? I think so. I mean, he like, was just like a witness, like the first time. Right. But he believes, he believes so wholeheartedly or he believed, sorry, because he, did uh, he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He'd be like a million years old at this point. Did, did he really believe wholeheartedly? I thought he was just, you know, I saw these nine things skipping across the sky like sa- like saucers on water or whatever he said. Yeah, but then and he created a second career out of it after his time in the military, right? I didn't know this. Well, yeah, he wrote a book. He did all these appearances at, you know, UFO conventions, et cetera, et cetera. So. Oof, I'm losing my UFO cred. <laughs> I did not. I did not know this. Yeah. Jeez, I knew that about Betty Hill. Are you disappointed in me, Brian? Uh, no, not at all. I'm letting you kind of talk about this. But yeah, he, he made a whole thing about this. Like, you know, he gained his like uh, second wind, I guess would be the best way of putting it. So he became a, he was a pilot, right? Or was he Yeah, he was a pilot, like a, yeah. He was a pilot. So, okay. So that's what happens now when you, there we go. So what would happen with class is they would think that people were just looking for fame. 
that's what that was his reasoning for everything at this point yeah i mean also like most like more famously when we talk about the travis walton incident he uh disbelieved the results or believed the results of the uh, polygraph test even though a lot of the polygraph testing that uh the class had either a hand in or was like notified about seemed to be um strangely worded statements that kind of uh, elicited uh, different kinds of responses based on the situation at hand. So there's a, a huge credibility issue when it comes to uh, Philip J. Claus and uh, polygraph tests and understanding uh, how they fit into his narrative. He also wasn't afraid to go back into um, uh, a witness's past and use something to shame them. So for Travis Walter, for example, like he had a uh, run-in with the law uh, some uh, time prior to his abduction. He used that against uh, Walton in order to try and discredit him. I would hazard a guess that Class was the type of person that if the polygraph test made him happy and proved his results and proved what he wanted to see, he'd say it was fine. And any time the polygraph test didn't meet his expectations, he would say, well, polygraph tests are not a standard that we could go by. Oh, I don't, and that's the thing with ufology in general. I think there's a lot of that going on on both sides of the aisle, both skeptic and believer. For sure. And that's why we try. This, one should strive. To be a number two, 2.5 on the scale of double densities ufology, like a good old J. Annal and Heineck, because at that point, you kind of are in the middle and you can see it from both sides and see where the actual story lies. Yeah, for sure. But I think that calls for a degree of rationality that a lot of people don't necessarily have, right? Even, um, you know, people who want to believe really want to believe. So they really need to get their facts in line. And then people who want to be skeptical and sort of shoot everything out of the window have that narrative in their heads when they go in, right? So the idea of going in with an open mind to a lot of these things is very difficult for a lot of people um, who see things one way or the other. I like to think of myself as unbiased, but I'm totally not. Yeah, you, you definitely, uh, you go in there uh, in a very skeptical kind of way. That's the problem. But What's important is that you actually are able to discuss it. For example, we we have guests. We've had two guests on our show that are both, um, I'd say, a three or three point five on our scale. I'm, uh, I'll have uh, Rob and Sam email us and let us know if we're wrong on that. But I, I we think had Sam did indicate that he was a three, so I definitely yeah. Agree with that. So there we go. So we ha- and we have great conversations with them, and we. We don't argue about this stuff at all. We just enjoy talking about it. And that's where it becomes important. But there's too much in this, in ufology, where there's so much infighting just within even the same circle. Like the Roswell guys hate the other Roswell guys for believing the wrong Roswell thing. I mean, like, for example, like we mock Tom DeLong and Stephen Gurr for this kind of disclosure nonsense uh, because they really do want to believe whether or not it's for uh, financial gain or personal recognition or for whatever reason uh, that exists out there. And that's why they, they continue to prosper is because people want to believe in what they believe in, too. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of like lack of self-questioning with a lot of this kind of stuff because there's a right, there's a righteousness involved in crusading for causes in ufology uh, that makes people both uh, above accountability as well as kind of like uh, sort of uh, beyond it all or like they pretend to be beyond it all at the end of the day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And so I feel like a lot of the time there when a rational explanation is brought to a uh, someone who tends to err more on the side of belief, then uh, it's a lot of uh, jumping to conclusions. Like, for example, uh, the idea of misinformation via government agency or planted person is something that exists very much in ufology all of the time. And that's a bit of a silly concept sometimes. There may be disinformation. Well, there definitely are disinformation agents, but they're not as... Uh, widespread. Oh, yeah. They're not as widespread as 
they'll have you, they will have you believe. A good example is like the Rindeshlim case, where now the authors of the book like hate each other because they've decided not to each prescribe to what they originally thought, whereas one went more skeptical and one became just totally crazy. Uh, and the Rendlesham's <laughs> another famous nighttime case. Yeah, like I was saying before, it's definitely like, it's one of the definitive bridge cases, I think. Uh, I have these festive Christmas lights near my desk, and I think they're haunted. It, please go on. So we started talking about the UFOs and stuff. They started flashing a lot more than they normally do. And now for the last five minutes, they've been solid. Why do you think that is? Maybe this is like Stranger Things and somebody's trying to communicate to me, with me through Christmas lights. Do you, have you lost any loved ones recently? Do you have, do you know where they are? No, no, no. I, I know where everyone is, knock on wood, uh, even though I'm not superstitious. But it's, it's really odd. They still, they haven't blinked anymore. And it's, it was creeping me out a little before when you were talking about uh, being on a dark road all alone and frightened. That's when they started uh, flashing a little more often. So I'm not quite sure what's going on in my house. Have you been on dark country roads alone at all at night? It's interesting is uh, we've briefly discussed this, but years ago I, I, uh, I wrote and played on my own album that I was the, one of the first things I did when I got uh, an iMac, an, uh, not an iMac, an iBook oh, a long time ago. Uh, and one of my favorite songs that I ever wrote was called Lonely Road. So maybe we'll uh, stick it in here. I'll give it to Brian to put into the show. But, you know what? Uh, maybe we should release a song as like a Christmas gift. Maybe. Like, we'll put it up for, like, Christmas for everyone to come and kind of listen to, because I think that'd be kind of cool. Yeah, it could be fun, just as a a little bonus. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, to show that at least one of us has some kind of musical talent. Maybe. All right, we'll think about it. This is why you keep me around, Brian. That and the banter, I think, at the end of the day, right? So the idea of uh, sharing audio space together, right, in talking about ufo tropes and the like i think is a very important thing so if anyone has any comments about the classic ufo tropes uh in terms of like abduction cases etc cetera, etc cetera, we'd love to hear your thoughts you can go ahead and tweet at us double underscore density facebook.com slash double density podcast same thing on instagram and you can hit us up at double density.net click on the contact button if not click on the episode tab take a look what we've been up to if this is a brand new venture for you and you want to know what we're all about and if not go ahead and click on the blog link to read some articles that we posted about various topics at hand including my favorite which is about how to uh, properly film a ufo with your uh, smartphone or other small device which i think is a very important thing to do in this day and age especially if you're alone on a road at night and this is something we can probably cover in the future these uh we've only covered one real trope tonight and it's the frightening experience with a ufo on a dark road when you're alone or just with somebody else so it would be fun to maybe start covering other UFO tropes. And if anybody can think of any that they want us to cover in the future, let us know. One of my favorites is whenever uh, bright lights are being filmed at night, you hear someone make a comment about them. Like, what's that? What? Who? What's going on? And, and like that. Oh, boy. Are they all in Minnesota? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to tie things back to the beginning of the segment here, Angelo. It's called continuity and it's called closing the loop. There's a great line in Fargo. In episode nine, season two, I won't spoil it, but highly recommend if you like UFOs, go watch Fargo. Season one, not much about UFOs. Season two, not much about UFOs either, but uh, there's stuff about that on a tangent. Go watch it. A lot of fun. Really weird show. And with that, this wraps up episode 32 of the Double Density Podcast. Angela, how are you doing? This was fun. It was cathartic, uh, the tech section, to just talk about how... Um, 
crazy it is when you start looking into audiophile stuff. And it did allow me to think about myself as well as how maybe I'm a little crazy with certain things like backing up data and trying to get things organized on my various devices. But yeah, audiophiles, man, they're weird. <laughs> I love that as a closing statement. As always, tune in next week as we discuss cryptids, colon, interdimensional visitors, or gigantic teddy bears. Angelo, I'm going to see you soon. I'd like to meet one of those teddy bears. We'll arrange for it in 2018, I think. All right. See you, Brian. Goodbye, Angelo. UFO, uh, 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 who, what's going on? Uh, 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 oh boy. UFO.